Welcome to the 339th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Peter Polos to discuss doctors with disabilities in COVID times. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 13th, 2021, there are 4,630,729 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Call for Urgent Action to Prevent Learning Disability Deaths. This was written by Ruth Clegg and appeared in BBC News June 12, 2021. People with learning disabilities are still dying 25 years earlier than the rest of the population, a report has said. The Learning Disabilities Mortality Review, LEDER, calls for urgent action to prevent more avoidable deaths quarter of learning disability deaths were caused by COVID in 2020 compared to 13% of other deaths. The National Health Service in England said improving the health of people with a learning disability was a priority. The LEDER was established in 2015 to try to understand why so many people with learning disabilities were dying from avoidable causes and to try to improve their access to health care. The latest report compares data from the deaths of 9,110 people with learning disabilities who died over the past three years. It found that while there had been some small improvements, life expectancy had increased by one year, people were still experiencing a huge, were still experiencing huge inequalities. In 2020, 24% of learning disability deaths were caused by COVID-19 compared to just 13% in the general population. Peak month for deaths from COVID-19 was April of 2020, when 59% of all deaths were from the virus. It was the leading cause of death in men over 35 and women over 20 with learning disabilities throughout the past year. Reviewers found that poor testing provision, a lack of support from specialist services, and difficulties using the National Health Service played a National Health Service 111 line service played a part in many of the deaths. Nearly a third of do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation orders made in relation to people who had died from COVID-19, the correct procedure was not properly followed. In some cases, the reason given for a do not resuscitate order was because the person had learning disability. One example cited in the report was because the person was wheelchair bound needs to be hoisted care home resident learning disability. They also found many examples of poor care. In 42% of the deaths in 2020, reviewers felt that the person's care had not met good practice standards. 
Stephen Baskin's family feared that he could have become one of those statistics. The 43-year-old who has Down syndrome was treated in hospital for COVID-19 at the beginning of the outbreak in March 2020. His father, John, was told that his son would not be given access to a ventilator should he need one because of his underlying health conditions. He said, I received a call from a doctor who told me that a decision had been taken. Should Stephen require the use of a ventilator, then this would be denied. I was exercising in the park at the time of the call and had to find a bench to sit down. I was really taken aback. He discussed Stephen's condition with other senior doctors who intervened, and the decision not to give him a ventilator was reversed. He said, Stephen had undergone treatment which affected his immune system, but other than this, he was perfectly healthy and his treatment was going well. Stephen recovered from COVID-19, but his family felt they had to fight to get him the access to health care they felt he needed. Report author Pauline Heslop, who is based at the University of Bristol, said, this year for the first time, we've been able to compare data based on the year of a person's death. There are some small signs of progress being made, but this is not sufficient, nor sufficiently well distributed across people with learning disabilities from different ethnic groups. Actions taken to date, while welcome, have clearly not been enough to make the progress we should expect to see. Claire Murdoch, mental health director for NHS England, said, every year people with a learning disability die sooner than they should, and many from potentially avoidable conditions, such as constipation or aspiration pneumonia. Despite the pandemic, the National Health Service has ensured that three quarters of people over the age of 14 with a learning disability have received their annual health check two years ahead of the long-term plan target, she said. It's vital that we use this report to make real and lasting change to help close the health inequality gap seen throughout society. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation and let me introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Peter Pulos. Peter Pulos is a clinical associate professor of radiology and gastroenterology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. In 2003, as a GI fellow at UC San Francisco, he suffered a spinal cord injury and subsequently retrained in radiology. His specialty is body imaging, focusing on CT, MRI, and ultrasound of gastrointestinal diseases. He is the founder and co-chair of the Stanford Medicine Abilities Coalition. He's a member of the School of Medicine Faculty Senate and the Stanford Medicine Diversity Cabinet. His work focuses on advocacy, education, and health equity for those with disabilities. He is the co-host of the Docs with Disabilities podcast. Peter Polos, thank you for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Good to meet you, Scott. Thanks. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and, and uh, get a snapshot of what the COVID situation looks like there today. Yeah, so I'm calling from my home in San Carlos, California. We're in San Mateo County in the Bay Area. Um, things are not great here with Delta raging, but uh, it's not as bad as, uh, as it once was, of course, during the peak in January. But uh, hospitalization rates have been decreasing slightly, but ICU admissions have been on the uptick. And so Stanford right now is currently in the process of um, building up some, some more surge capacity in anticipation of those patients. But, you know, we have less than 20 patients right now um, 
in our ICU. And so, you know, that's considerably better than before. Um, Santa Clara and San Mateo County are somewhere between 80 and 90% vaccinated at this point. And so I think that's a big reason why um, we're doing so well and better than other parts of the state and country that have lower vaccination rates. This uh, surge that you're describing, how many times is that for you at your medical center? Um, so we surged up at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, preparing for a surge that um, wasn't quite as bad as we imagined, um, thanks to quick acting by the California um, government and shutting things down and flattening the curve. And then we had another um, surge in the winter. And um, I think this is a third surge at Stanford, although I'm not directly involved in those um, in those decisions or surge planning. So I could be wrong about the exact number, but that's my understanding. Hmm. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this period. And I, and I always say this because it's kind of an impossible task. There's such a density of, of memory in these last year and a half and more of the pandemic. But I wonder, is there something that really resonates for you about this time? Yeah, so um, lots, there are a few memories. This has been a really um, poignant time. And um, I mean, my I remember the first, um, you know, we'd been hearing about coronavirus for, you know, at least a few weeks before things were shut down. And um, I remember thinking, oh, this isn't likely going to be a big deal and just sort of pushing it out of the back of my mind. But, um, you know, when things really started to get serious, I got fearful for myself. Um, you know, I have poor lung capacity and it's uh, difficult to breathe um, because of the diaphragmatic and, and other muscular paralysis, but I don't use a ventilator or anything, but I knew that if I got COVID, I would have a tougher time fighting it than someone else. And so I guess my first instinct was sort of self-preservation and acting, um, by just sending an email to my, my, uh, leadership asking if I could work from home and they were immediately okay with that. And then um, shortly after they're thinking about like all of the other people with disabilities out there, uh, not just in medicine, but of course our patients with disabilities. And, um, and so that was, that was my initial thought. And then just thinking about in general, like my caregiving situation, and like, what would it mean to be socially isolated with just like me and my wife at home? Like I have caregivers who come into the house and help me and what to do with them. Um, luckily, you know, they were socially distancing and kept coming into work and providing care, um, which was like essential basically for my continued function. And I knew that other people probably, you know, weren't so lucky. And, and so it just brought up all of these different, um, different issues related to disability. And then there were a couple other things that happened too that were pretty crazy. One was um, my, 
my um, son was born on July 26, 2020. And my wife um, became quite ill after the birth and needed to be transferred to the ICU. Like nothing to do with COVID, just a pregnancy complication, but she was separated from the baby. And on account of, I mean, that was very traumatic for her, but you know, they, just because she was in the hospital didn't mean that they were going to keep the baby there. And so I had to take the baby home and this is something I did not plan on. And so again, like luckily I was able to cobble together some care for myself mm -hmm. and for the baby. Um, so, you know, just thinking about disability and, and parenting and how that thing goes. So yeah, there were quite a, quite a few twists and turns. Thanks for sharing th those stories and congratulations on your now over one year old uh, new member of your family. That must yep. have been in the midst of all of that, what's already a stressful thing when everything goes exactly to plan. And I'm, I hope your wife is okay. And yeah, and she's fine. I'm, I'm glad you. to hear that. And then uh, to say, okay, it's time for you, Peter, to take your child home. That must have been really something. <laughs> I did not plan on this. You know, I mean, um, we had talked, you know, I mean, being disabled and a parent is complicated. And, you know, I wanted to be as involved with the parenting as I could be. But we had to figure out, we had to decide amongst ourselves, like what that would look like and how much I would actually do just as a matter of like efficiency and, and practicality. And so, you know, we had not decided that I would be like the single caregiver. So yeah, it was quite a shift. But like I said, we, I mean, luckily Diana had some things in place like a night nanny before um, the baby was born. So, and my caregivers really stepped up to the plate and took care of me and the baby. And um, and so luckily I, I, we, uh, they've been working with me throughout the pandemic. Neither one of them has gotten COVID. We haven't gotten COVID. Um, but, you know, I've been working at home the whole mm -hmm. time also, and my wife hasn't been working. So we've been able to socially isolate pretty well also, which has been, which has been a real benefit. One of the things I wanted to follow up on there, and, and I've read about it, but hadn't heard from someone firsthand about in-home in health uh, caregivers. <laughs> and the protocol so pre-COVID, I mean, did you already have sort of more stringent health protocols with, with health workers that come into your, to your home? I mean, COVID is not the only thing that can, could make you sick at home. And as you said, if you have some uh, uh, heightened vigilance for respiratory disease, um, it seems like something you would have already maybe be attentive to. I ask this because the reporting I've read is to, to the extent that it's reported, it does seem that that's been a huge issue for people with disabilities is the coming and going of healthcare workers who are going from site to site to site throughout their day and throughout their week and early on may not have had access to the appropriate PPE or the knowledge that they needed to keep um, their patients safe. So I wonder how that's worked out for you. Yeah, so that you would think that one might have protocols, but no, I don't other than you know, please wash your hands when you come in the door. Um, no, we, we, um, 
these are private caregivers. They don't come from an agency. Mm -hmm. I mean, we follow, you know, standard procedures, but there's really nothing that needs to be sterile necessarily or much in the way of even like medical procedures. And so, um, no, we don't really have anything other than, you know, they'll call in sick if they're not feeling right. well. Well, that alone is, is but I'm, again, is I'm, I'm lucky. And, and the women who work for me are like very smart and responsible and, um, and caring and, and also, um, themselves, their own personal situations are such that, you know, they don't have significant others who are seriously exposed, um, nor do they have like a lot of people coming and going or lived in a, in a multi-generational household, for example. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of, um, things that, that were lucky about this situation. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with my guest, Peter Pulos, about doctors with disabilities in the COVID-19 age. And Peter, let's, let's go back, if we can, and talk about your, um, your work before COVID. And, and um, any, any part of that in, in your bio, it describes um, injury in 2003 and how that changed your life. And your advocacy work, which has been ongoing, it seems like since then, all the way up to the time of the, of the pandemic. And then we'll talk about the pandemic after, but I'd like to get a little of the backstory. Yeah. So um, do you want me to go back back to like when I was deciding whether or not to change careers? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, like you said, I had a spinal cord injury in 2003 and I was paralyzed initially almost completely from the neck down and unable to move. Um, luckily, uh, my injury was incomplete. And so I did gain function back over time, uh, regain the ability to walk slowly and some movement in my arms. It's nowhere near, um, back to normal. Like if you, if we were in person, it's pretty obvious that I have a disability. Um, and, uh, I was excited to get back to work and get back into the hospital and start seeing patients again. And, Seeing patients was really great. I felt like I had a new perspective on the doctor-patient relationship, um, a lot more, not just empathy, but connection. And, um, you know, that was wonderful, but at the same time, it was very difficult for me to examine patients without help. Um, the procedures that I loved to do, I wasn't able to do anymore. And, um, you know, I also felt like I had fewer options uh, in gastroenterology than I would have in radiology, um, you know, in terms of like a practice setting. And so in thinking about radiology, I, I thought, well, you know, if I ever worsened substantially, I could work from home, never thinking that I would end up working from home because of a pandemic. It's like right. the society collapsed, but not my own health. And so, but, but I, I knew that that could be a benefit uh, in different situations. And I, the best part would be I'd be able to um, do the work without any assistance. So when I'm at my computer, you know, I have a mouse and a microphone and uh, the standard software everybody else has, and I'm able to do the work and able to do it. 
um, at a speed and volume that's similar to my colleagues. And so, you know, in medicine, I think experience is um, experience is one of your best teachers. And so to have, um, to be able to see more patients uh, and take like a normal volume um, of work and work experience was really important to me. And so, yeah, I decided to make the switch to radiology um, and started at Stanford in 2004 and then did five more years of training there and started on the faculty in 2009 in abdominal imaging. So just taking it back to those GI diseases that I found interesting, you know, ever since medical school. And so my practice was pretty much um, like a standard academic practice, um, similar to my peers. I, you mentioned the modalities of imaging I read, and I just spend most of my time, you know, at the computer with a resident or fellow, going over cases with them, you know, pointing out either findings that they missed or confirming their findings. Um, discussing, you know, ways in which we might craft our report and better, you know, communicate illness or health to our referring providers. And so, um, you know, I do have some accommodations because of my disability. You know, for example, I don't take any overnight call or um, evening call. That's one thing. And I have a backup person when I am on call to do uh, procedures in case one is needed. But um, that's about it. And, um, and then, you know, around, well, I would say in the beginning of my career, I was focused quite a bit on administration of the residency program. I was the associate program director for seven years. And um, I stopped doing that in 2016 mm. or 2017 and then um, decided that it was time to look for something else, some other way to make an impact. And I noticed that disability wasn't being represented in all these great diversity efforts that were mm -hmm. going on around campus. Or if they were, I wasn't aware of them. And so I decided to get involved. I'd always had an interest in like social equity and social justice. And so, um, so I joined my department's diversity committee as, you know, a disability representative without really any goal to start any disability related projects, just wanted a, a seat at the table. And then um, from there, joined uh, the Faculty Senate Subcommittee on Diversity and, and very sheepishly brought up the idea that maybe we would work on our disability-related project, hmm. um, which I was surprised that people were enthusiastic about um, taking on. Of course, as the person with the disability, I became the person in charge of the effort. And at that time, I really didn't know much about disability at all at Stanford or disability advocacy in general. Um, it was like a very steep learning curve, um, mostly because I'd been treated so well 
um, you know, and have so much like privilege as it pertains to, you know, my access to healthcare, my caregiving situation, my stable family life, my income, um, and my, and understanding leadership and colleagues. And it wasn't until, you know, I started the Abilities Coalition that I started to hear the stories mm. and realizing that, you know, it wasn't all roses anywhere. Let me follow up on the on the medical education side of things. So either in your experience or in what you've come to learn now in your advocacy work, what what is the, the reality of life for medical students with disabilities? It's a wide spectrum, right? I mean, so we could be talking about everything from learning disabilities to mobility disabilities, chronic health conditions. So it, it may not be a very take any part of that you want to, but I'm, I'm curious specifically um, how things may have changed if they have for the better, or hopefully not for the worse in the time that you've been following this. What's it like for a medical student with a disability these days? Yeah, so uh, I would like to think that we have made an impact at Stanford. Um, there's a disability community. Well, there was a disability community there for the medical students even before I started SMAC. So um, the medical students formed a group called MSDCI, Medical Students with Disabilities and Chronic Illness. And they formed a few months before SMAC was formed. And they were actually instrumental in really uh, educating me on the disability situation and and in sharing their their stories so generously really contributed to um, to my ability to convey the importance of this issue since like I said I didn't have my own personal experience with mistreatment so I would say that um, the experience for medical students um, in terms of community has definitely improved in the last few years um, you know, they have each other, they have SMAC, they have advocates uh, amongst like the faculty who are looking out for their well-being. Um, but the experience is highly variable. Um, as you can imagine, it depends on whether or not somebody has a visible or invisible disability. I think that the people with visible disabilities, especially like mobility or wheelchair um, users tend to have an easier time uh, accessing accommodations and being taken um, you know at face value and believed that there there is a reason that they're requesting for accommodations whereas those with um, other less visible disabilities or chronic health conditions often meet more resistance or um, skepticism when asking for accommodations. And so, I mean, just from the 
from the very start of even thinking about being a doctor all the way to practicing medicine, there are barriers along every step of the way. So, you know, I mean, and just put aside all of the barriers that a person with a disability encounters before medical school in terms of their education and, and livelihood and um, experience and assume that, you know, they have the, the grades and the scores and the social situation that would enable them to start as a medical student. Well, the, and then they go on to, um, you know, the internet and start doing research about what it takes to be a medical student. They'll, they'll encounter these things called technical standards, which are sort of non-academic requirements for completion of a medical program. Things like, um, you know, you have to be able to um, do cardiopulmonary resuscitation. You have to be able to listen to heart sounds or uh, read an x-ray. Um, so a lot of these are put in terms of like um, functional type language that if you, if it's not explicitly stated, which it often isn't, that this can be with or without a reasonable accommodation, a person with a disability would look at this list and think, well, there's no way I can do this. Schools have different approaches to how they enforce the technical standards and some are better than others about, um, you know, using reasonable accommodations to accomplish the same objective. For example, you know, if um, to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation is a requirement, some school might take that literally that the, the person has to do it themselves, whereas another school might say, well, you know, a physician is rarely going to be the one to be doing the CPR. And even so, he has a team of nurses and other people, so we'll allow them to explain the process of CPR or, um, you know, schools have developed tools to allow uh, even a quadriplegic person in a wheelchair the ability to do chest compressions to fulfill the technical mm -hmm. requirements. And so that's a big hurdle. And then, you know, in applying for medical school, let's say they're granted an interview, the interview letter may not say anything about asking them if they need accommodations. Right. If they get in, there's no information about how to request accommodations. Maybe there's no welcome um, inviting people to disclose whatever disabilities they might have. So there's like a real lack of proactivity on the part of many medical schools. And then there's the fear of disclosure and what disclosing a disability will do to their reputation and their future career plans and what sort of discrimination they may or may not experience. And then there's the way any accommodations they may receive are, are received and implemented, which can be anywhere from happily to very unhappily or not at all. So there's, uh, there are problems all along the path. Um, I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Peter Polos today. And um, 
thanks for going through those. I mean, there's so much to work on there. And, and that's just in terms of medical education. And as you said, I thought that and that's just at the point of like trying to get in to medical school and get through those those years, not everything that that came before. So I, I want to pivot to to something you wrote earlier in the pandemic. Um, one of my guests the other day said historians have already started talking about the pandemic in period of say like the early pandemic, the mid pandemic. And it's yeah. true. We do have that sense of it. You wrote a piece uh, in the online publication, Just Security in the this was in April of 2020. The headline was healthcare workers with chronic illness on coronavirus frontlines, the need for accommodations. I'm just going to read a sentence of it. Um, it's a really powerful piece that you wrote. You said, I consider myself strong and resilient, having lived through the experience of rehabilitating and rebuilding my life after my accident. I'm also generally healthy. I do not have chronic illness, but my injury weakened my diaphragm and respiratory muscles in addition to my arms and legs. So I have diminished lung function and a persistent feeble cough. That means I would have difficulty fighting coronavirus and more difficulty weaning off a ventilator should I need one. And and this is what you were you were describing this, you know, earlier in our conversation. You go on to the in the piece to talk about the many different experiences of healthcare workers with disabilities and the call in that moment to make sure that they have the protection they need, especially, and, and you described a situation where you could uh, work remotely, but that's not been the case for healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, and support staff in many settings. So I wonder, maybe talk a little bit more about what motivated you to write this and what the impact has been, what you've seen maybe hopefully in reaction to that call. Yeah, so, um, you know, right after I made arrangements to um, to work from home, started, you know, talking to friends of mine in the medical field. And um, one of my uh, friends, he's a radiology resident back east, um, told me that, uh, and he's immune suppressed, actually, and uh, confided in me about the nervousness that he had about uh, going to the hospital. And, uh, you know, he tried to talk to his uh, residency program director about um, his request to work from home and was sort of met by, um, again, skepticism and hostility. The, the um, the program director was sort of putting it in the guise of his, that it would be in his own career benefit to stay and work in the hospital because if he didn't, people would really question his motivation, becoming a radiologist and his dedication to the program. I mean, this was stated explicitly. And, uh, oh, and by the way, the only the faculty have the ability to work from home. You see, we have these special workstations, but you know, we couldn't possibly provide those for the for the residents. That would just be too much. And uh, and you know, if we give them to you, then everybody's going to want them. You know, these typical sorts of discussions around disability about opening, you know, a can of worms. And so, um, you know, he ended up like really not getting much in the way of accommodations. Eventually. So, well, let me rephrase. In the beginning, he did not, but then uh, pretty quickly after that, they, like a lot of other programs, told 
uh, everyone that they could work remotely. And so he sort of got absorbed into that everyone category. Mm -hmm. And that's how things resolved. Um, not because they made any exception for him, but because they realized that this was the right thing to do for everyone. And then I talked to another friend of mine from San Francisco who, whose supervisors basically told him to, you know, suck it up that, you know, you, you know, he, he, he was a physician during the AIDS crisis, uh, you know, from the very beginning and, they're like, uh, you know what to do with uh, with infectious disease, wash your hands, gown up, and you'll be fine. And really just sort of dismissive attitudes like that, um, you know, telling people not to worry about it. Um, and so uh, this is what motivated me. I mean, these are just two people that I talked to. I figured that this, later I would talk to a few more people but I knew that this would be an issue affecting tons of people and um, I mean, beyond physicians, but to nurses and respiratory therapists and any other um, healthcare worker uh, in the hospital or even outpatient setting. And so I, uh, I don't know how much of an impact it had. Um, I don't know if this has been studied or not at this point. Um, but I would like to think that it started a conversation. I know that um, it did um, have an effect at Stanford and really brought this to um, the attention of like our leadership who hadn't been really thinking about that up to a point. But the problem is, you know, is that you know, just because uh, you're making people aware of something and, uh, you know, and just because a leadership of an institution is enlightened about these things doesn't mean that accommodations or the right thing is going to be done um, at the individual level. Because so many people with disabilities like report, you know, one level up in their organization um, to ask for accommodations or work modifications. And that means that uh, the system for a lot of people is very decentralized and that it can almost be uh, random as random as whether or not your supervisor mm -hmm. um, like has any knowledge of laws or regulations around disability um, whether or not you receive the help that you need and so you know the of course like people do have a right to go to HR um, and invoke their rights under the ADA, but you know, there's such a stigma and fear around this um, that people often don't. And you know, their nursing supervisor or ward administrator, whatever, may not have the necessary skills or, or willingness to make these things. And sometimes it just, stops there. And so that that's a huge problem. And that, you know, is uh, has to be tackled um, through like continued education and advocacy on one hand, but also just like better processes and, mm. and, um, and structure for, for so people with disabilities know where to go for help, because it's often the case that they don't. 
I, I wanted to follow up on that because I've talked with lots of disability rights advocates throughout the pandemic. And there's been this sort of sense that this is a moment, maybe the only moment we've had where across the entirety of American society, the term accommodation has been heard. People and mostly for people without disabilities. Like we need to make an accommodation so you can work safely during pan the pandemic. And mm -hmm. there's a deep, terrible irony in that. And yet a possibility, as has been pointed out to me, that this is once again a moment where people who don't think much about disability have had to look at that and think about what that means. And so just to follow up on what you were saying, I mean, what's the right scale for intervention? for health providers, for doctors with disabilities in, in this moment? Is it just you were describing the problem you have to report one level up for accommodation? I mean, is it is it in training? Is it in the way health system managers are trained? Is it more on the legal side? So there should be state laws that actually dictate what needs to happen. I'm just sort of curious your sense of where you pick this problem up if you really want to intervene in this moment of I mean, opportunity isn't the right word, but in this moment of possible change, where's the action point? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of potential action points, but I I do think that a top-down approach has to be undertaken to enact significant change in the system. Um, I mean, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act made a huge difference in the lives of people with disabilities who had been advocating for years for equal treatment under the law. And uh, for years we're told that it wasn't necessary, that people really, you know, that people are good and they wanted to make the, uh, the right accommodations and do the right thing. And it wasn't until things were codified into law that we really started to see any movement in that direction. So. You know, I think that uh, the regulatory bodies in medicine um, are going to play a big role in this. So, um, you know, the Liaison Committee on Medical Education that accredits medical schools, um, if they start to require that disability is routinely, routinely tracked as a function of um, diversity measures, if they um, insist that schools have to show what they're doing to attract and train and retain students with disabilities. Um, if they uh, are required, if schools are required to show proof that they are including disability education about patients with disabilities in their curriculum, I mean, those will take, those will uh, make a huge difference. And similarly with the uh, American College of uh, General <laughs> Graduate Medical Education, the AC ACGME, I may have bundled that, which is really bungled that, which is really embarrassing. Um, but, you know, they govern all of the rules and regulations for residents and fellows. And, um, and then the AMA, I mean, we're so we're talking. We're talking to all of these people, myself, and other people working in this fields are are talking to these national bodies, and and they're the ones who are going to have to hold um, hospitals and training programs accountable for 
for what they're doing. And so I do think it's going to take that, you know, I mean, this, uh, we talk a lot about culture change and education, and this stuff is really important, especially like in improving the climate um, in an institution. But I, I don't think things are really going to change until um, they're mandated by regulations and laws. With that on the table, I wonder about what your vision is of inclusion and, and the impact of that across the health system more generally. And, and I think about that particularly in this time of, of COVID. You know, if this work maybe had started 25 years ago, if somehow health outcomes with COVID might have been better more generally, fewer healthcare workers, just in the situations that you described. I mean, this is something that has to, it starts pretty far upstream, I think. But, you know, we're talking about disability advocacy, but that has, in my experience, that has impact for everybody in the health system, not just people with disabilities who, who profit from that kind of inclusion. I, I wonder if that's something that, that's a case that you've been able to make. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, yes, it has to start, I mean, it has to do with the whole health system in general, but especially around social determinants of health and getting all people better access to healthcare that's, you know, comprehensive and affordable, and then just training healthcare providers how to take care of patients with disabilities. Um, we need more research into like best practices for taking care of patients with disabilities. I mean, there's emergency preparedness, um, making sure that um, information is in, a, in an accessible format for patients and their families. Um, accurate reporting of like, you know, how many patients with disabilities are we serving? And how are we doing serving them? That kind of information is not being currently collected. And so, I mean, if you're not um, counting people, then um, there's no way to know where you are and there's no way to improve. And so all of those things need to be done and they need to be done not only for people with disabilities, but for those in other um, marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. We're almost up on time in my COVID calls conversation with Peter Polos today. And just on, on the way out, Peter, I wanted to give you a chance to give a plug for your podcast, Docs sure. with Disabilities, and, and your co-host, Lisa Meeks, um, who's not with us today. We hope to have her on a future COVID calls. What's the podcast about? So the podcast is, uh, is called Docs with Disabilities. We interview not just docs with disabilities, but nurses, physical therapists, OTs, other healthcare providers with disabilities, and also our allies in the disability space about um, their personal experience and their ideas and research uh, about disability in medicine. Uh, Lisa started the podcast a couple of years ago more like three years ago now, and I joined her um, as co-host in January. And um, we're going to be soon uh, be, uh, starting a special series um, examining the lives of BIPOC people with disabilities and the intersections between race and uh, disability. And so that should be coming out um, shortly. 
Uh, I think it's just for anyone who's interested in, in healthcare and disability, this would be a great resource. I think one of Lisa's main motivations for starting it was as a, what she calls an asynchronous mentoring tool that people who are interested in getting into the medical field or who are in it now with disabilities can go and use it as a resource and find people like them who are talking about what it's like to live with a particular disability while in school or beyond. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And today, uh, please stay tuned. There'll be a second COVID Calls episode starting uh, in just about 10 minutes. I'll be talking with sociologist of risk, Dana Fisher. So please do join me for that. And I want to thank my guest, Peter Polos, for this um, really enlightening conversation. Peter, thanks for making time to talk to me today on COVID Calls and good luck with your continued advocacy in this really important time. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.